0: This is the Stanford's podcast at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at Destinations in Olympia. From hotel rooms, we're going to hear the confessions of an international towel thief. Please welcome to the stage, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Carter. Thank
1: you.
2: Uh, th- thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for for sparing the time to come and listen to the ramblings of a geriatric Gulliver. I hope you enjoy it. But if you don't, at least you'll have taken the weight off your feet for half an hour. Now I was going to start by quoting from a recent article by that celebrated travel writer Mr Bill Bryson. But then I thought, why the hell should I? He's never quoted anything of mine. But that left me with a problem without a way in. But fortunately, a a helpful lady from Stanford's said that I was allowed, even encouraged, to quote from my own work. So let me run this past you. It was a little after three o'clock on a miserable December morning. After spending several hours in Soho, I was being driven to my home in southeast London, sitting beside the driver, because two dancers from a Soho nightclub were sprawled across the back seat of the car. As we headed across Waterloo Bridge with rain beating on the windscreen and the car's heater working overtime, I considered my situation. The girls were sleeping. Having finished their cigarettes and their conversation several minutes previously, I turned to look at them. Their faces still plastered with heavy stage makeup, their long fishnet clad legs protruding from beneath shabby raincoats. They were snoring quietly, their mouths agape. Half an hour previously, they'd been in the spotlight on stage, all feathers and spangles and glamour. There was little glamour about them now. That's show business, I suppose. Turning forward, looking through that rain-drenched windscreen as we negotiated the dark and deserted streets, I thought to myself, this could be the start of something big. Life-changing, even. I was right. Though not in the way you may be thinking. It was December 1968... And work, not pleasure, had kept me late in Soho, writing commentaries to films as they spalled off an editing machine in a cutting room in Rupert Street. Within a few days, those films would be broadcast on BBC television as part of the very first holiday programme. That series, Holiday 69, changed my life and many other lives too. It and subsequent programmes had a profound effect on the British holiday industry and on every Briton who buys its products and travels the world for pleasure. It was, as they say nowadays, a game changer. It also had a tremendous effect on my personal and professional life. Until holiday 69, I was a print journalist, always had been. After it, I was, in addition, that bloke off the telly. Greeted by strangers, respected as a pundit, and whether I liked it or not, drawn inevitably into that same show-busy world. Which brings me back to the nightclub dancers, and I'm sure you're dying to know about them. They were there because in the small hours of the morning, the minicab firm would only venture south of the river if I was prepared to share the ride. Conveniently, the stage door of the Latin Quarter nightclub was a few yards down Rupert Street, and it became routine for me to give those two girls a lift to the flat they shared in Catford. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not from Gollible's travels, but is the start of a book I'm still working on. Its working title is so far so good. I hope it will get published one day, but I really need to finish it first. Having spent over half a century globetrotting at other people's expense, staying in luxury hotels, eating in fine restaurants, enjoying the world's most blissful beaches and seeing its most spectacular sights, I can understand why people got the idea that life, for me, was one long holiday. And the question I was constantly asked was, how did you get that job? How did you land such a cushy number? Well, in 1961, I'd been in London a little over two years, full of brash self-confidence which, along with rat-like cunning and plausibility, are the tools of the journalist's trade. I was 26, two years married, with one toddler and another on the way we just bought our first house, paying less than 3,000 pounds for a three-bedroom semi. But I had a huge mortgage, and I desperately needed more money. A job became available in the newspaper group for which I worked. It would mean a small increase in pay, but more important, an expense account upon which I could lavish my best creative writing talents. So I applied for the post. And about a week later, I was in the office loo when the chief London editor entered and occupied a neighboring store. After a pause, during which he attended to the business in hand, he looked over and said, nobody else has applied for that job, so you might as well have it. And that's how I became the group's travel editor. That's how I embarked on a career and a lifestyle that came to be envied by, well, millions. Because it was a job nobody else wanted. And oddly enough, nobody believes me to this day. Now, I discovered right away that there was, and indeed still is, a sort of pecking order of travel writers. First, uh, the explorers and the adventurers, the real-life Indiana Joneses, the high-profile lads and lasses, who occupy prime-time television and the best-seller lists, whose exploits in jungle and desert, on the high seas and in the high mountains, supply shared adventures and vicarious thrills. Then come the immensely clever folk who toil for years to produce wonderfully fat books and know all about stuff like history and architecture and art, who can tell you all about Byzantine frescoes or Renaissance sculpture about pharaohs and emperors and ancient monarchies. Then there are what I call the concentrated enthusiasts who write comprehensive guidebooks to countries they know like the backs of their hands, who can rattle off details of esoteric customs and cultures, ruling dynasties and local train timetables with equal aplomb. And at the bottom of the literary pecking order, are the likes of me, writing and broadcasting about holiday destinations. We are the light like relief. But we're all at heart storytellers, which is why this book of mine is quite simply a collection of travelers' tales. All true, though some of them may be unbelievable. Now, I'm fortunate that my career coincided with the tremendous explosion in popular travel when people discovered they could have a fortnight in Benidorm for the price of a week in Blackpool, with the added bonus of guaranteed sunshine, low prices in bars and restaurants, service with a smile, and a bathroom en suite. And with the passing of time, I've watched with delight as we've traveled all over the globe to places undreamt of in those early days. When I began, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they weren't holiday destinations. They were countries you emigrated to. The USA existed only on the cinema screen. And as somebody who visited Orlando several years before Mickey Mouse got there, I witnessed the monumental Anglo-American culture clash of those early years. The Americans thought all British holiday would be like the very few up-market travelers they'd encountered people whose arrangements had been tailor-made for them by Thomas Cook. On the other hand, the Brits, who travelled no farther than the Spanish costas, assumed that Miami would be just like Magaluf on steroids. I was there when those two misconceptions collided. Just as I was in the Algarve region of Portugal, when the beaches were empty because there were no decent roads, certainly no airport, and possibly half a dozen hotels in the entire stretch between the Spanish border and Cape St. Vincent. It was called Europe's best kept secret, but not for long. Now, I said a moment ago that my career coincided with a monumental explosion in popular holiday travel, but it's getting harder to recall those long ago times when the simplest of holidays was something of an adventure, Such a recollection is impossible, of course, for a younger generation for whom the holiday abroad has always been a part of their lives and is therefore no big deal. Youngsters for whom the idea of travelling without a mobile phone is unthinkable. And has anybody tried to explain, maybe to their grandchildren, how it all worked before credit cards were invented? Way back then, you had to tell people what a paella was, explain about tipping in restaurants, and remind them about driving on the other side of the road. Not that anybody would do anything so dangerous as hire a car, of course. Travelling abroad was thought of as being a bit scary. And sadly, a lot of people also thought, back then, that foreign holidays were only for the really rich or really posh people. At the start of my career in London, when I was a general reporter, I used to go regularly to the Savoy Hotel, where a current celebrity would be presenting a giant cheque for £75,000 to that week's winner of the football pools. And they would almost always confess that now they were in the money, they would fulfil their lifetime dream and go on a cruise. How times have changed. And once people had conquered that, oh, it's not for the likes of us, social barrier, they plunged into that wonderfully glamorous world of holidays abroad. Yes, glamorous. The weekend scene in the departure hall of Luton Airport was like something from a fashion magazine, or more appropriately, a wedding reception. Ladies wore smart going away outfits, tailored jackets, snug skirts, high heels, and often hats. Their husbands sported blazers with regimental crests on the breast pockets, shirts and ties, well-pressed trousers, and brand new haircuts. Back then, flying in an aeroplane was seen as something glamorous, even if you didn't turn left at the top of the steps. I'm sad those days have gone, but I have recorded some of my airborne adventures in Gullible's Travels along with tales about the occupational hazards of the professional traveller. Funny foreign food, folk dancing, and terrible hotels. I've tried as well to capture the sheer enjoyment of it all, as well as the scrapes and the dodgy situations we sometimes encountered, because above all, it was great fun. For obvious reasons, I'm particularly interested in how the older generation travel. I write for a website called the Silver Travel Advisor, and I never cease to be amazed at what its followers get up to and where they get up to it. I suspect most of you in that age bracket are doing more than just about managing. And it's good that you are, for without you the travel trade in general, and ocean cruising in particular, would be in a very sorry state. Not-for-nothing is Fifty Shades of Grey an accurate description of passengers on a coach tour. But it wasn't always so. In 1951, a chap named Sidney de Haan realised that the hotels in his hometown of Folkestone were empty during the winter off-season. So, he negotiated cheap room rates and advertised holidays for people who were no longer tied to these school holiday dates, older folk of modest means and modest ambitions. On the Saturday morning when his first clients were due to arrive, he took himself to Folkestone Railway Station in order to meet them and escort them to the hotels. As soon as he got to the station, he realised he hadn't brought up a sign to hold up and identify himself. I felt really stupid, he told me, years later. There was no way my customers would be able to find me. In the event it was he who identified them. They were the passengers who got off the train carrying their possessions in brown paper parcels tied up with string. They were the old-age pensioners who didn't own suitcases because they never went anywhere. They were only just able to make ends meet, scraping together the money for Sydney's cheap off-season holidays and that believe it or not is how saga holidays began. We've come a long way since then in every sense of the word. When I was asked to come here and talk to you I had no idea exactly of what was required of me. One of my friends said all I needed to do was stand up, read a couple of excerpts from my book then answer a few questions. But I thought, no, that would be sort of shortchanging you. So, what I will do now, if I may, is to conclude with an excerpt from Gulliver's Travels, the first of my stories. A couple of minutes before seven o'clock on the morning of July the 8th, several years ago, I stood at the western end of the Calais de la Estafatia in Pamplona wishing to God I was somewhere else, anywhere else, would do. I was waiting for a flare to signal that the first of half a dozen balls had been released from the pen less than 200 yards away en route to the boring. Care de Estefata was part of that route and waiting, I reflected on how I came to be in this hazardous situation. About a month earlier over dinner, in a restaurant somewhere in Devon, Tom Savage, the producer of the BBC's holiday programme, had suggested that the San Fermin Festival in Pamplona, more usually known as the bull running, would make good television. I agreed, but said it would make even better television if I wasn't a part of it. This comment was made from the heart, as apart from a tendency towards cowardice, I do possess a well-honed sense of self-preservation. Having grown up in close proximity to the countryside, I've seen what a moderately annoyed cow can do to an innocent member of the human race. Damn it! I knew a farmer who had been badly injured by a sheep with no sense of direction. So to deliberately place oneself in the path of a speeding bull is not something I was going to do. On this, my mind was firmly made up. However, As the evening wore on, I succumbed to that deadly combination of alcohol and stupidity that has been my undoing on so many occasions. And I heard myself saying, Wow, what a great idea, let's go for it. And so here I was, taking part in the ritual of the running of the balls, and probably about to die as a result. I had no time to dwell further on my folly, for the flare soared into the sky, followed a split second later, by a second, and that was not a good sign, literally, because the second flare, you see, signals the last of the balls had left the corral, and with hardly any time between the first and the second, those balls were already coming at a hell of a pace. We tried to run, a line of Guardia Civil blocked the way. Their orders were to prevent us stampeding and trampling on the runners farther down. It was a sense of precaution, but not one we appreciated at the time. After what seemed like an age what was probably no more than a few seconds, they moved aside, and sobbing with relief and fear, I ran like a terrified rabbit. Knowing I was in more danger from fellow runners than the Bulls was of little conclusion, because the Bulls didn't know this. Neither did the steers. Now, nobody who ever ever mentions the steers when they write about the bull running and the thrills and the excitement of that festival. But half a dozen of those great slab-sided creatures are released to run with the bulls, in theory, as a calming influence. They're not supposed to present any danger. But as they're the fighting weight of a Vauxhall Astra, the slightest accidental nudge can do serious damage to your ribcage. So I ran as fast as I could, thinking of horns and hooves and slight nudges and of how all that mobile beef was gaining on me. I ran in my stupid black berry and my ridiculous red scarf and my brand-new espadrilles because Tom had insisted we should all dress the part. I was determined not to die in such an outlandish outfit. Not like Geoffrey, but that's another story. By a miracle I made it, whimpering with terror to the ball ring. I scrambled behind the wooden barrier and lay on the seats, shuddering and sobbing in the foetal position. Now, any day that has its adrenaline peak at 7.15am requires a large quantity of alcohol to get you to the end of it. And as the wine takes effect, You forget the fear and begin to believe you are Ernest Hemingway reincarnated. You lie about your bravery and the extent of the danger you were in. This is mainly done to impress young ladies who are supposed to gaze at you in doe-eyed admiration. Never has the term bullshitting been so apt. All that wine, combined with bravado, ensures that when, towards the end of the evening, somebody suggests you run again tomorrow, which some idiot invariably does, you hear a familiar voice saying, wow, what a great idea, let's go for it. And so, for four days, I ran with the balls. And by the fourth morning, I'd almost convinced myself I knew what I was doing, almost. However, that morning, there was a complication. As I stood once more in Calle de la Estefeta, waiting for the signal flare, an English voice yelled out, hello old son, fancy seeing you here, how the devil are you? I turned and immediately recognized the man who was calling me, an actor named Trevor Howard. Clearly, he'd mistaken me for someone he knew, for we'd never met until that moment. That wasn't the problem, however. The problem was that Mr Howard was absolutely blotter, as drunk as the proverbial skunk. He and a bunch of other folk had been driven through the night from the film festival in nearby San Sebastian, fortifying themselves with copious amounts of wine and, in Mr. Howard's case, much branded, too. To this day, I do not know who he thought I was. There was no way of finding out at the time, much less convincing him of his error. He had no idea where he was or what was about to happen. The only thing he knew, for an absolute fact, at that precise moment, was that I was somebody that I wasn't. He was in the middle of one of those endless, pointless monologues, much favoured by drunken people, when the flare went up. I turned to go. Mr Howard was in full flow and thought I was being rude. He said so, loudly and in picturesque language. He also grabbed me firmly by the shoulders so I would remain and listen to the conclusion of his lecture. As people ran past us, I saw out of the corner of my eye but the first of the balls had entered the street. I pulled free for Mr Howard, who staggered back, shook his head, grunted, and passing out, collapsed backwards like a broken puppet into the shop doorway. Pausing only to kick his legs to safety, I joined the fleeing mob. I made it to the ball ring, but en route was overtaken by three balls and four steers, and to this day I do not remember their passing me. There are bullfights in Pamplona, but they're not very good. The fighters are either veterans on their way down or novices on their way up. But we had to film the bullfights, if for no other reason than to bring the wrath of anti-bullfighting viewers down upon our heads. Among the crowd was a group supporting one of the novice fighters. And for reasons known only to themselves, they'd brought along a duck as a mascot. A real duck. From time to time, this wretched bird was flung into the air, but it couldn't get far, as she had a long string attached to one of her legs and would be hauled back, quacking and flapping like an ungainly feathered kite. The spectacle was very cruel and rather sad. Naturally, we filmed it, though we knew it could not be used, even if the duck gang had refrained from making extremely rude gestures towards us and our camera. At the end of our last long evening on the way back to the hotel, we encountered about a dozen of those fans, led by a burly bloke with a stubbled chin and a serious personal hygiene problem. He had a large plastic barrel of wine slung over one shoulder and the semi-comatose duck stuffed into the top of his leather jacket. Recognising us from our encounter in the arena, he barred our way, insisting we should have a drink with him as his chums. One of them had a load of thick green glass tumblers in a bag. But Mr Stumble was, was hampered in his efforts to fill them from his barrel because of the duck. So he removed her from his jacket and placed her on the pavement. Then the toasts started. To Pamplona, to Spain, to England, to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, to General Franco. It was, as I said, a long time ago. As we were in the process of swearing our undying love for each other, not to mention the great English Broadcasting Company, the duck began to recover her senses. She'd had a terrible day, indeed a terrible week, and was in the mood for revenge. My feet were inches from her head. She lunged at my bare ankle, ripping down with the serrated edge of her beak, drawing much blood. I dropped my tumbler, which oddly enough did not break, but bounced along the roadway, and I began to hop around in considerable pain. I also tried to kick the duck, but it is not possible to hop and kick at the same time. I may have sworn. I know Mr Stubble did, as he scooped up his duck, yelling abuse at me for trying to harm her. And then he led his chums away. As the Victorian Music Hall Ballad puts it, we parted on fighting terms. With the red scarf bound round my ankle as a makeshift bandage, I limped back to the hotel, helped by my companions. Prue, the production assistant, cleaned up the wound, declared it didn't need any stitches, and dressed it with a couple of large plasters from her BBC first aid kit. Thus, my Pamplona adventure came to an ignominious end. But it gave me a unique claim to fame. I am the only person you will ever meet who survived the bulls of Pamplona only to be gored by a duck. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Um, I'm told that you may have some questions. If so, please fire away. No! Oh, I'm going to get away with it. Pop your hand up if you've got one.
0: Uh, Here's a gentleman. And if anyone else has got one and it occurs to you, pop your hand up and I shall whiz over to you.
1: I used to do a great great amount of cruising when I was younger. And in those days, if you went on a 14-day cruise... You literally stopped at about 11 places and you had one day at sea. And if you came into a popular resort, you actually came as near as possible. But what's happening today, and well, I've I've, I've seen it many times now, that if you go on a 14-day cruise, you're lucky to get eight destinations. It seems that the ships are um, trying as much as possible to get their days at sea. And what is very annoying is that if you come into places like, for example, like Dubrovnik or something like that, where you could come right in, they seem to go about 8 miles or 10 miles out. Now, I just wonder whether there's um, underlining reasons for this, which is um, not very good.
2: (laughs) Yes. um, Cruising today is dominated by the Americans. As you know, both P&O and Cunard are owned by Americans. And the American style, the American attitude to cruising is that the ship is a resort hotel and they want to spend as much time as possible on it. And where they're going is immaterial. By coincidence, Carol and I were in Dubrovnik uh, towards the back end of last year. And from a, from a tourist point of view, a holidaymaker's point of view as a land-based tourist, the cruise ships are a menace. Not a day went by, but there was at least two. On one day, there were four. And there are these huge juggernauts with thousands of people on board, and the result was you you couldn't see anything. There were masses and masses of people wandering about, getting in the way. Um, We experienced the same thing in Florence two years ago, when a lot of cruise parties had been bussed in. And it got to such a stage, there were so many people, you couldn't see anything. Indeed, the Japanese had the selfie sticks and they were taking photographs of the things they couldn't see because of the crowds, which I thought was madness. But as far as cruising is concerned, the traditional... And I'm going back now to, to before-fly cruising. You, you, a fortnight in the Mediterranean, you'd sail out of Southampton, cross the Merry Bay of Biscay, and two weeks, five ports of call, perhaps? Uh, Because in those days, a lot of cruise passengers actually wanted the days at sea. Uh, Unfortunately, many cruise companies want to get you ashore, because of course then they don't have to feed you, and they save money. Um, I've got a mixed feeling about cruising. I've done a lot in my time. I used to go with my wife and kids on on holidays. I've done a lot of lecturing on cruises. I, I don't like the large ships. I've had my most enjoyable times, uh, which are mentioned in the book, on uh, ships like Ocean Majesty, which took about 300 or 400 passengers, and a delightful, wonderful ship called Island Sky. I don't know if any of you know. She takes 120 passengers. She's like a little yacht. She's gorgeous. Um, and I simply can't imagine going on one of the, those ships with two, three, four thousand 4,000 people in. Um, but I suppose it's all a question of taste. and. I, I do remember talking to my friends in the cruise companies and saying, you know, why there are all these huge ships, thousands and thousands and thousands of berths? I said, who's going to fill them all? And, of course, their, their answer is, well, economies of scale mean that's why we're going to build them and just wait until the Chinese start to travel or just wait until the Indians start to travel. And I do remember, I'm old enough to remember, when we used to say, just wait till the Japanese start to travel. Um, The idea, presumably, is that there are literally millions of people waiting in the wings and the ships will be all there ready for them when they're ready to to, to go cruising. Something
0: I wanted to ask you, John. um, If you were to take a book with you in your rucksack, do you have a particular author that you default to, whether it be... uh, or a style, biographies, travel writing, fiction? Hmm...
2: I suppose I should talk about. I suppose I should talk about travel books as being the thing I would take with me, although I am a bit of a sucker for good historical fiction. Um, there is a book which I have read, a very old book called Corriott's Crudities* by a man called Tom Corriott, who did the Grand Tour and wrote about it. Uh, the man who introduced forks into Britain and came back uh, uh, with. He'd seen a device in Venice, uh, quoting from memory, a, a, a device of wood which could be expanded into a large area in order to, to shade one from the sun. Uh, this was called the Umbraella, and he introduced the Umbraella into Britain. Um, he, he wanted to write a serious book, but his publisher told him he couldn't, and so he tried to make it funny, and he ended up... He died. He, he, he was one of those publicity junkies of the time and having done the Grand Tour and written about it he then decided to walk to India and he died he's buried somewhere near Calcutta um, there's the Codex Calixtinus which was written by a monk called Emery Pecco in 1300 and something which is the first guidebook uh, the guidebook to the uh, pilgrim's route to Santiago de Compostela um, it was great he, he, he actually in his book he he um, He warns people uh, to um, take a device, like a wedge, which they can use to secure their bedroom door at night, for fear that somebody would come in and kill them while they slept. And Beware of of, uh, the fact that some of the food or some of the drink might be poisoned, so you'll be robbed. Uh, So He he kind of laid the the foundation of our slight suspicion of foreigners, which we get to this day. But no, I think as far as books are concerned, Yeah, um, there's a chap called Ronnie Delderfield who wrote a lot of very good books, uh, uh, um, some of which have been adapted for television, but not enough in my opinion. He wrote some soup books. Um, Yeah, he'd be good reading for me on, on a trip. But of course, all those working trips were so busy we never had time to read. In your career, you've traveled to many exotic places and stayed in luxury hotels. Is a holiday for you just relaxing at home? Uh, Oddly enough, yes. The the standard joke when I was doing my work, when people said, where do you go for your holidays? I I used to say, well, I've I've got to deal with Ford. I do a couple of weeks on the assembly line at Dagenham. (laughs) But, um, no, my idea of a a, a holiday now is to get out and about and see as much as I can. I learned over the years a thing, which I'm pretty certain you, you probably know as well as I do, that although we go all over the world and we we take photographs of the beautiful sites and we listen to the history and they tell us all about the the cathedrals and the palaces and all the rest of it all that's terribly important and wonderful in a holiday but it's getting to meet people that, that I think is important your fellow travelers and people who live in in the place um Carol and I were in a rather nice hotel on the other side of the Lapad Peninsula in Dubrovnik at the end of last year. And we got chatting to the little girl who ran the bar, whose English was very good, whose German was very good as well, and who spoke quite good French. And she also told us that she spoke two of the dialects of East Africa, because six months of the year she worked in East Africa on projects which were tied into the church that she belonged to. And you know, a half-hour conversation with that girl really opened my eyes, because until we actually got to talk to her, she was just the girl that brings the coffees. And I think you have to take the trouble to get to talk to people. Um, stupid little things. This morning, I was waiting on Blackfriars station uh, to, meet, to meet Carol, and I got chatting to the girl at the Costa Coffee. She's from Spain, the other girl was from Greece, and the lad behind the counter was from Italy. And I thought, that's great, and so we chatted about Italy and Greece and Spain, and uh, he said that they also, I said, you've got a girl here from Costa Rica. And he said, yes, she's not on today. I, I, I love the idea of, you know, you come from Costa Rica and end up with Costa Coffee, but that, that's the <laughs> Um And he said, yes, he said, we also have Tim, he's English. I said, you, Costa Coffee actually employ an English person? It's the first time, every time you go into a coffee shop in London, the kid behind the counter will probably have a little flag denoting that he or she comes from all over the world but never from London. Like those early days in Orlando when all the, the, the people who, who staffed Disney and the other, other theme parks would have their name plus the town they came from in America. And very rarely did you ever meet anybody who was actually born in Orlando. But I, I, I think the main thing is to... Give yourself time to get to know people. And also, I think, also, take the trouble to learn the story behind the story that they tell you. When the tour guide tells you about something, you can bet your bottom dollar that when he or she has put the microphone down, and you go and sit and say, what happened after that? Or why did that happen? They'd they'll, they'll be full of extra, more information. Now, I can't help it. I travel... As a journalist, I I just want—I want to know more. I want people to tell me more. But that's the only way you can get any value out of a holiday. I mean, if you go and and keep your mind closed, there's no point in going, really. Sorry.
0: Two over here. I'm coming.
1: Uh, first of all, can I thank you for your television programmes, which I can remember very fondly, you with Judith Chalmers and all the rest of them? They really set me off on an enthusiasm for travel, and thank you very much indeed, I, it's Mr. A Carter. It's a uh, my question is an obvious one, and it's probably an easier one as well. You've been yeah. around the world lots of times. Anywhere particular that stays in your memory, if you only had one place you could go to for the rest of your life? Where would it be? Where, where is your favourite? I mean, yeah. I'm besotted with Italy, I don't know why. Yeah. It's the food, it's, the, it's everything, really, the culture. Ah. Where would you go to if you could only have one more country to visit? What's your favourite of all the places you've visited, do you think?
2: Oh, well, yes. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that when I started, Australia was where you emigrated to. Well, indeed, I visited Australia many times... But I never ever made it to Brisbane or Queensland. But my daughter married in Australia and now lives in Brisbane. And so I visited her and got to, to travel around that area. And Queensland is absolutely amazing. It is, it blows your mind. Um, it's got theme parks uh, down, down, down the Gold Coast. Uh, you travel north. To the oldest rainforest in the world, uh, Aboriginals who can track their history back 40,000 years, with the oldest people on the world. It's got the wits on the islands. You've got if you golf, it's got golf courses, sailing, uh, brilliant beaches. It's just got just about everything, and it's also mind-boggling in its size. Um, I knew Australia was big, but if I can remember the statistic, this isn't really an answer to your question, but I like odd stuff, odd facts. Um, Brisbane, I mean, mean, uh, Queensland, is just one state of Australia. And it's divided up into constituencies uh, for political reasons, just as as over here. And I think there are something like uh, 26 or 27 constituencies. One of them is the Mount Isa constituency, which sends one member of parliament to the um, state state parliament, Uh, a woman, as it happens at the moment. The population of Mount Isa constituency is somewhere around 25,000, and at the last election 19,000 and something people actually voted. if that brings into your mind, like, like Rutland, with Mount Isa town being the middle of it, you need to know that the Mount Isa constituency is bigger than metropolitan France. Think about it. 30, 25,000 people living in an area the size of France. Now, when they say the world is crowded, no, it isn't. Um, sorry about that, That's just another one of those things.
1: Hello, I think I'd probably want to go to Australia too, uh, hearing how big it is and how much there is there. I believe it stretches from the Caspian Sea to Ireland and from Norway to the Mediterranean for size, yeah. but it's not my question. No. <laughs> um, Bigger than the moon. I, I'm wondering if the Silk Road has been resurrected. I know it's not one road, but several, and I hear that there's a, an industrial train which has just traveled seven countries to be here by January the 19th for Christmas decorations and things. But I was wondering if it existed in a touristic sense.
2: Yes, I think um, it did. As far as I know, it still does, but I'm not au okay fait with the current political situation in those countries. But you're right about the train. It came all the way from, uh, from China and through and under the tunnel and it ended up in some marshalling yard in Kent um, and full, of, full of stuff. But there again, you see, uh, that's another thing that's happening, Tra- train travel. I think it would be good to get on a train and do the Silk Road by train. Why would be bothered. Uh, The German state railways are supposed to be coming into Waterloo quite soon. They were due last year, but they've not made it. So we'll be able to get a train at Waterloo... Not Waterloo, St Pancras. Be able to get a train at St Pancras and go to Germany. Just as you can now go to uh, Belgium and and France. And uh, I want the Italians to run a train in too. I want to be able to get on a train at St Pancras and go all the way to Italy without changing trains. Um... There is a huge renaissance in rail travel, mainly because a lot of people are fed up with the stupid security precautions at airports. Uh, One has to be very careful when one expresses an opinion. But I have a very strong opinion about airport security. It's an oxymoron. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous. I went through Terminal 5 two years ago. Um, I'd heard bad stories about it, but I went through in about 15 minutes. It was a breeze. So I got myself a coffee, and then I went and get, to get my paper from W.H. Smith. So when I came back, the crowd had built up. And an elderly gentleman, who must have been in his 80s, was being patted down by one of the security people. This was causing him great distress, and indeed it was causing his wife great distress as well. And the fact that he was in a wheelchair made me say, well, we've all gone mad. Because if if we are behaving like that, then... Well, we're just stupid. Um, And a lot of people, a lot of older people are just fed up. You know, they don't want to start taking their belts off and their shoes off in order to get on an airplane, so they go on a train instead. And there's been a huge number of people now traveling into Europe, especially people going on uh, river cruises, who just get on the train. But the Silk Road is still there. It would be wonderful to do it. I don't know if I will, though.
0: John, can I ask one last question, because we're almost out of time, but um, you're uh, an international towel thief, but do you have a particular favourite towel or another hotel trophy that you keep pride <laughs> of place no, that, you're that you're able that to tell us about without the podcast risking
2: prosecution? No, it's just a joke, really, you know, we all... the old joke, you know, you, you love the hotel so-and-so, the towels are so soft and fluffy you won't be able to close your suitcase. Um, but, no, I mean, it was always a joke. We used to pinch the the uh, lovely wooden coat hangers at one stage. I mean, I've got masses of lovely wooden coat hangers all stamped with different hotels uh, in, in my house. But then they, they, they changed it so you don't have the hook anymore. You have that funny little bobbly thing and it all. So, um, so it's got, you've got to be the towels. Um, I was saying earlier on before there, we used to have a, a bit of a game about how much you could actually take from a hotel room without using a screwdriver. Not that we ever did, but um, one, one time we got extremely drunk on a trip and um, uh, we we descended on this chap's bedroom and uh, we piled everything up on his bed we we undid mirrors and pictures and all sorts of stuff it was stupid and ridiculous we should never do things like that again and I promise I never will but it was all one of those things you did
0: extraordinary, thank you very much Uh, we've run out of time, please give a big round of applause to John Carter Thank 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 you thank you very much and John will be signing copies of Gullible's Travels at the signing at Stanford's stand. Just-